Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Cole and man did I miss you guys. This past week has been such a stinker for me. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some things that I found interesting and some other stuff that doesn't necessarily fit well into the podcast. Also, go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep everybody busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. How Good It Is, by the way, is still still a featured podcast on the Podcast Republic app. I don't even know what else I can tell you anymore about this thing. Playlists, driving mode, compatible with all the major feeds. You need to install this thing like yesterday. Podcast Republic is available for free in the Google Play Store, or you can just click the button at the How Good It Is website. You know, early in their career, the Supremes, well, they were anything but Supreme. They first got together in 1958 as the Primettes, a name they got from the fact that they were originally supposed to be a sister act to the Primes, which was the first name that the Temptations had. After winning a local talent contest in Detroit, Diana Rost asked her old friend Smokey Robinson to arrange an audition for Motown owner Barry Gordy. Gordy liked them well enough, but he thought they were just a little bit immature, and he turned them down. Their first tactic after that was to just go and make their own record called Tears of Sorrow. Tears of Sorrow did a whole lot of nothing, so the primates went to plan B. They started hanging around the Motown offices as much as they could, eventually convincing Gordy to let them provide things like hand claps and occasional backup voices for acts like Mary Wells and Marvin Gaye. And it wasn't until about two years later in 1961 that uh, Gordy finally agreed to sign them to Motown under the condition that they changed the name of the group. He gave them a bunch of names to choose from, and Florence Ballard, who at that time was considered the leader of the group, even though she wasn't the lead vocalist, chose the name The Supremes. This was their first single from 1961, titled, I Want a Guy. I Want a Guy failed to make it to the top 40, and so did the next five singles. It got so bad that some people around the Hitsville USA offices started referring to them as the No-Hit Supremes. Finally, they reached number 23 with When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes. Now, in the meantime, the writing and producing team of Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Eddie Holland were working on a song. According to Lamont Dozier, it was a breakup of his that inspired the song. According to uh, Mark Rabowski's book about the Supremes, Dozier was thinking about how something as strong as love could also be so fragile and then just go poof like that. It's like, where did our love go? 
from that thought, he managed to get something down, and he and the Hollands laid down a musical track. Now they needed a group to sing it. See, at that time, Motown had a policy that if you cut a track and the song didn't get recorded by one of the artists, well, the songwriter had to pay for the recording of the track. Now, here's where the story gets a little bit hazy. Brian Holland said in 2012 that Where Did Our Logo was written with the Supremes in mind, but Supreme Mary Wilson and Lamont Dozier have both said that the song was originally given to the Marvelettes, who turned it down. This story actually makes a little bit of sense because the musical track is in Gladys Horton's key, not Diana Ross's. Dozier took the song to Gladys Horton and he played it for her, and Horton hated it. So that was it for the uh, Marvelettes. He went through the roster and he got all the way down to those no-hit Supremes. And uh, he told them the song was tailor-made for them, but the Supremes were wise to him because they'd already been told by Horton that Holland Dozier Holland was looking for someone to record it. They finally persuaded the Supremes to record it. Uh, but the fact is, in the end, the Supremes didn't really have a lot of choice given the losing streak that they were on. But because the Supremes didn't have a choice, they also came into the studio with kind of a bad attitude. Uh, Dozier said that Diana Ross complained that it was in the wrong key. Well, of course it was, because it was recorded in Gladys Horton's key. And while it was in Mary Wilson's key, well, Barry Gordy had already given the lead singer designation to Diana Ross. So that was pretty much that. So the first time around, Ross recorded it in her usual high register, and it didn't really work out at all. She was told to go back in and sing in a lower register, and Ross finally complied. And the register change, while subtle, was quite effective. Listen to Ross singing on this track. And now check her out on Where Did Our Love Go? Now, in the meantime, the other two Supremes were originally given some complicated background vocals, but they couldn't get them down. So Dozier simplified it all the way down to baby, baby, ooh, baby, baby, and not much else. This worked out very well for them in the end, though. The song was released as a single in mid-June of 1964, and it ultimately spent two weeks in the number one position on the Billboard charts later that summer on August 22nd. In fact, Mary Wilson wrote in her memoir that the Supremes went on tour shortly after the song was released, and they noticed that in each successive city, as the song climbed the charts, the response to the song got wilder and wilder, and it was enough to move them from last on the bill to the top over the course of the tour. Where Did Our Love Go was their first number one hit, and it was followed by four more chart toppers. Baby Love, Come See About Me, uh, Stop In The Name Of Love, and Back In My Arms Again. Now I'd like to go back for a moment and listen again to those opening beats. Listen again to how deep that sound is. See, one of the features about the Motown studios is that they had high ceilings and mahogany floors, and that helped to enhance stuff like claps and foot stomps and finger snaps that appeared in so many songs recorded there. And they also had an echo chamber in the studio. Now, remember, this was 1965, and synthesized sounds weren't available then. See, if I want to do an echo, all I have to do is turn a knob on my, uh, on my mixer. Piece of cake, right? Uh, they couldn't do that then. They had to go and make echoes if they wanted them. In Motown's case, it was a hole that was cut in the ceiling of the studio. And then they rigged a microphone somewhere up in the hole, depending on the level of echo they wanted. In this case, what they'd done was lay some plywood over the mahogany floor and then put a trio of mics around the person doing the stomping. And then they placed the microphone all the way up into the back of the echo chamber with the result of a sharp step and a nice, deep echo. See? 
piece of cake. Oh yeah, the song was also recorded in German for the German-speaking market. This was around the same time that the Beatles did a couple of songs in German, so there might have been a reason that there was a strong market for translating songs only into German. Where Did Our Love Go has been covered a number of times, including by the Jay Giles Band, Ringo Starr, and the Spice Girls. But there are two covers that really stick out in my mind, and they happen pretty close together. The first one was in 1981, and is probably the more famous of the two. The new wave band Soft Cell did a double cover, first of Gloria Jones' Tainted Love, which was also from 1964, and the 12-inch single segued into a second cover of Where Did Our Love Go. And then a couple of years later, the song was performed live in 1983 by Adam Ant on the Motown 25th Anniversary Special. And I think it's pretty clear that he was influenced by the uh, soft cell version. It's kind of interesting because Adam Ant was a known performer in the United States by then. The crowd, if you watch the video, they look polite but a little bit confused. And I think part of that comes from the fact that they did expect Diana Ross to reunite with the Supremes and instead they're getting adamant. But if you listen closely, you'll hear a reaction that seems a little bit out of place. So the first little rumble you hear is a woman coming on stage to dance, and she's got her back to the audience. But when she turns around, they can see it's Diana Ross, and now they're quite excited to see that she's put some kind of stamp of approval on this cover. She and the Supremes did reunite later in the show for the song Someday We'll Be Together, which coincidentally was their last number one hit. Oh, and for what it's worth, Diana Ross sings the word baby 14 times in the original record. Uh, and the other Supremes clock in at 54 times for a total of 68 repetitions of the word baby in two and a half minutes. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. If you want to get in touch with me, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also like, visit, follow hey do what you like with the show's facebook page at facebook.com slash how good it is pod or you can check out the show's website how good it is.com where i throw in a few extra bits for you thanks again to podcast republic for featuring the show and hey whatever whatever pod uh, catcher you use to to get this show please leave a rating of some kind okay every little bit helps right Next time around, we are going to find out how good it is to watch that smoke on the water. Or maybe not. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.